Welcome to the Stockout. This is your show at Freightways for all things related to the consumer packaged goods, uh, CPG industry. I am your host, Mike Bowdendistel. I'm the head of intermodal solutions here at Freightwaves. And in addition to following the rail and intermodal industry, I also follow the CPG industry. And what I'm going to do with this show today is going to be the final one of 2022. I'm going to talk about 10 trends that I'm expecting in the CPG industry in 2023. And I get uh, production to be 26 minutes to do this. So let's call it two and a half minutes a trend. Um, so I'll get right into it. The first trend here is CPG margins will begin to recover in 2023. The CPG industry has gone through two consecutive years where you know margins have really uh, contracted. Uh, and that was because their, their costs had inflated faster than those prices could be passed on through the retail channel and on to consumers. I think that trend will start to reverse in uh, 2023 after two consecutive years. Now, I did say that a year ago when I talked about uh, my expectations for 2022, but none of us anticipated um, the Ukraine war and all the impacts uh, that that it would have. If you look, take a look at the CPI uh, chart, compare that to the PPI, this is overall the you know, consumer price index in white, the producer price index there in blue. And you've seen how that producer price index is, is sort of peaked that's for, for, for all commodities. And I think there's a pattern that's at least uh, directionally the same in the CPG industry where CPG companies are starting to benefit, at least as far as their costs are concerned, from uh, decline in commodity prices. It, it, it does take longer for that to work its way through the retail channel if it is going to work its way through the retail channel at all. I think a lot of those price increases that have been pushed onto consumers will likely stay where they are um, rather than you know, rather than come down and, and maybe they're just make it so those, those places where prices will be able to stay flat. Uh, for the next, you know, couple of years, um, rather than, than rising, you know, every year, I think that's that's something that consumers would like to see. But I'm not expecting those uh, prices to to fall down as much as the input costs, you know, come down. So I think the CPG industry, which you know, in general, a lot of those companies had a few hundred basis points of margin pressure last year and had a you know a couple hundred more this year, they'll start to see their margins improve next year. So that's good news for um, CPG companies. And that gets to my next uh, trend. Second trend here is I'm expecting elasticities to to rise. And so um, that I think makes sense given how much the CPG companies have have increased their their prices. I mean, a lot of the CPG companies that I follow, you think of companies like Smucker, General Mills, Kraft Heinz, et cetera, a lot of their retail prices are 15% higher right now than they were a year ago. And then if you look at back, you know, another year further, a lot of those are up sort of mid to high single digits from the, from the previous year. So you've had two consecutive years of prices uh, on shelves for cons- these consumer products, um, outpacing uh, overall levels of inflation. I think it stands to reason that elasticities uh, will start to rise. So consumer, the consumers will start to consume uh, smaller quantities of a lot of those products. So far, uh, elasticities have held um, up very well. I mean, a lot of the CPGs even earlier this year were talking about how they really hadn't seen any uh, change in volume, you know, even in response to those higher prices, consumers getting used to those higher prices um, in the last quarter or so. However, some of the CPGs have changed their tone a little bit where they've started to say, well, uh, elasticities are low based on our expectations or based on history, but they're starting to to creep up and they're sort of, quote, low but rising uh, you know, elasticities. And you can sort of look at what's happening in Europe 
as kind of a preview of coming attractions, maybe where a lot of these CPG companies that uh, have a, a significant European uh, presence are saying that uh, their volumes are dropping in in, in Europe. So the elasticities there are higher in Europe than they are in the U.S. That makes sense with um, energy prices actually higher, um, you know, in Europe in response to, to, the, to the Ukraine uh, war, and um, that seems to be having a bigger impact on, on, on European consumers. I think as uh, the U.S. consumers get to be more stretched, we've talked a lot on this show about how the credit card balances are rising, savings rates are low, um, that consumers will start to pull back more. Uh, hopefully, the job market continues to be tight, but that's also a risk that um, you know that could loosen up and uh, find its way into lower uh, consumer spending. Although for CPG companies, that would be kind of a double-edged sword because they've had a lot of trouble, um, you know, recruiting and retaining employees as as well. So, um, you know, potential for a looser job market. That's that's kind of um, a double-edged sword for uh, for, for CPGs. But overall, would expect uh, elasticities to rise. You know, a lot of the companies that have done it, you know, increased prices four or five percent have seen maybe um, the volumes decline one or two percent. But those that are up in that sort of fifteen percent range, like like a lot of them are now, still relatively low elasticities. But expect those to rise. Uh, that leads me to uh, trend number three: um, gross grocers um, versus big box competition will intensify. So just think of those traditional grocery. Uh, retailers and really one of the big uh, events that happened this year is this pending Kroger Albertson's acquisition. I view that as a defensive uh, move against the big box retailers like like Walmart, um, you know, Sam's Club, Costco, which have really taken a lot of share in um, in, in groceries. And uh, you know, Kroger Albertson trying to get that back. I think when you know with that that acquisition, they have talked about going out to CPGs as being sort of one unified force and uh, the CPGs will have to respond to that. Maybe they face a little bit tight, tougher competition versus some of the private label brands that both uh, Kroger and Albertsons uh, own. And if there's a silver lining there, it's um, maybe the CPG companies that sell into those traditional grocers can take advantage of the enhanced data that Kroger will have. Kroger's going to have data on something like 100 um, million consumers uh, in the U.S. So, and, and those are those are households. So pretty much every household that shops at a traditional grocery chain, Kroger is going to have a lot of data on those households. You know, CPGs could do things like having very targeted advertisements, promotions uh, that are targeted to people who are sort of have a habit of buying their competitor of competitors' products. So I think you're going to see more like that, but really just lots of competition between the big box retailers and the traditional grocers for consumers, you know, various promotions to get them in the door. It'll be interesting to see um, if uh, Walmart continues to gain share among grocery shoppers or if some of that goes back to, to Kroger. But um, it's pretty clear. I think Kroger is not going to go down without a fight. Uh, the next uh, trend here I have for you is retailers will stop accepting uh, CPG price increases. So I think the Relations between the CPG companies and the retailers have gotten to be more contentious over the past couple of years. Uh, the CPG companies, you know, typically do you know go to the retailers and ask for price increases. I don't know, maybe once a year, maybe it's it's more frequent than that. But but clearly, um, in inflation in the CPG costs have been stronger and lasted longer than I think anyone would have expected. So a lot of those CPG companies have gone to retailers more frequently than 
the retailers would have liked and have asked for steeper price increases than the, the retailers uh, would have liked. So those relations a little bit, let's say a little bit frayed, but I think now that commodity prices have come down for a lot of those key agriculture inputs, that a lot of those the retailers are looking at what the CPG cost should be growing and are going to start to say no more as far as accepting further price increases. So the, the CPG companies that are relatively well positioned are those that have already gone to the retailer, asked for all the, the price increase that they're going to need to cover uh, the, their cost increases and um, you know basically don't have to ask for a lot more in 2023. And I'm looking at companies like Nestle called that out as, as maybe uh, asking for price increases early rather than than later. I believe Smucker said something similar and it's it's analyst call. But I think those their their margins are gonna be the ones where those companies are gonna see the margins improve. Uh, maybe the smaller CPGs that um you know weren't that uh, aggressive uh, early, uh, they're gonna have margins that are still below uh, targeted levels. Uh, the next uh, trend here is CPGs will have to adjust to new food regulations. This was a a, a year where there was a lot of uh, discussion, a lot of um, new new regulations that went into effect. And so from the CPG company's perspective, some of the things that they're going to have to deal with is, you know, this redefinition of healthy to take uh, attention away from, from fat, put more attention on uh, maybe sugar, maybe salt. So some CPG companies are going to have to adjust to that. There's also pressure from the uh, uh, Biden administration to make labels easier to read. There was a health and um, you know sort of welfare summit uh, you know recently on uh, food and food deserts and a lot of these food topics. But one of the things that they talked about was labels on foods that are easier to read. Have an example of a food label uh, there, and and so that label just like that would go on the right in the front of a, of a package. It would take away space from the graphics or whatever the CPG company wants to put on there. And it tells a consumer right away, okay, look, look out, this is high in, in sugar. It's 38% of my, my daily sugar intake. And someone trying to watch their weight all of a sudden knows that they, they don't want to see that. That would bring the U.S. more in line with what some countries in Europe are doing. That's an example from the U.K. You know, health minister of, of what a good front of package label uh, looks like. So I think it's all about um, you know making sure that consumers are informed about you know what they are putting in their into their bodies. I know the, the CPG companies, at least through their industry associations, have come out against those type of things. That does take away from the packaging space to get their point across. It takes away from maybe some of the branding that they would that they would rather um, you know have. Um, I think uh, there's maybe um, you know other regulations coming down the pipe. I mean, now this, the FDA has issued these final rules on food tracking, where there's going to be greater requirements for um, the, the various players in the food supply chain to track certain KPIs of when there are handoffs uh, with with food. Now, those don't fully go into effect for three years, but the CPG companies will probably need all of those three years to make sure that they have um, you know all of their Sort of ducks in a row in order to make make um, make good with those uh, um, you know orders, and then there's also I think the constant the the issue that there's too much concentration in certain parts of the food industry, and really that pertains mostly to the meat industry. Biden administration has has uh, issued a number of reports on you know talking about the the concentration in the in the meat industry and why that's to blame for a lot of the rising food prices. Maybe some of those concerns have died down just a little bit because the meat inflation was not as bad this past year as it was last year. 
but still, there's still four major producers that produce, you know, 85 or 90% of, of, of the, the packaged meat, the, the meat processors. So that's still a concern that I think those companies are going to have to make the argument that it is a competitive marketplace. Uh, topic uh, number six to watch out for in 2023 is CPGs will continue to refine their product portfolios. That's something we've seen the last few years is CPGs have gravitated towards uh, positioning their product portfolios for the types of uh, foods that will still sell well when consumers are cutting back on their budget. So those are premium foods. Those are a lot of, of, of pet foods, a lot of sort of fresh foods, things like vitamins, things that are health related. Those all tend to hold up better. I would even put in, um, you know, another inelastic in uh, food category would be things like coffee, soft drinks. Uh, CPG companies will, will continue to position their, their product portfolio in those uh, ways. Um, you know, I did see that Jana Partners uh, Activist Fund took a position in Fresh Pets. So, um, you know, maybe it's not a sort of across the board thing that all uh, pet food and, and, and fresh food uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do well. There's sort of rising competition in, 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 in pet food, but, um, expect the, the CPGs to, you know, do more with their position, their SKUs. I also think they're going to continue to cut a lot of the SKUs that, uh, do not sell as quickly or are lower margin. And the companies, you know, most able to do that are the ones that can cut an SKU and then the consumers will gravitate towards another, SKU in that product portfolio. You think of like the Smucker company with all its different types of coffee. It can cut a few of them and those coffee drinkers will probably go to another you know, packaged coffee that, that, that Smucker owns. Uh, next uh, trend here to watch is I think less capital will flow into alternative foods in 2023. And I think a big part of that is the collapse in uh, Beyond Meat has uh, pretty major implications. You have a stock chart, uh, uh, ugly looking stock chart there um, with CPG uh, or with, with you know Beyond Meat, and and then some of those those issues are company specific. Um, but uh, Beyond Meat had a, had sort of a dreadful year. You know they did things like rolled out products that weren't ready. I think there was also then less interest in from on the, from consumers in trying new you know types of products uh, that you know are more expensive. You know, a lot of those products didn't taste as good, um, and I think they rolled out too many. And I think they had a lot of the wrong corporate partners uh, trying to position themselves with the fast food uh, companies. But you also wonder, you know, is it just going to be, you know, sort of this this company that investors are less interested in, or are they also going to be less interested in companies like Impossible Foods, which, you know, you go back a couple of years and it looked like Impossible Foods um, would would go public uh, pretty pretty soon. That's back when uh, Beyond Meat was. Uh, you know, trading up at you know $200 a share and it was $13 billion in market cap. Now it's less than a billion in market cap. So there's just a lot less uh, interest from those owners. It appears that, that they want to go uh, public. And then it sort of brings up the other question is, uh, as far as other sort of food source alternatives go, is there going to be less interest there from venture capitalists? And I'm thinking about things like cell-based meat, where they grow certain meat in a lab or vertical farming, which is indoor farming, uh, where you can have that, you know, anywhere, you know, very close to uh, consumption uh, centers. There's actually a big indoor farming uh, facility um, from a company we had on the show that, that has their facility in Compton, California. Not a place you think of as being a big agriculture, but if you can do that indoors, it can make uh, sense potentially. But um, you do wonder if there's going to be less interest in those things, um, you know, now. 
Uh, moving on uh, to trend number eight, uh, CPGs will experience fewer supply chain issues. This ho- is hopefully not just wishful thinking, uh, but it's something that CPG companies have really struggled with uh, lately. And, and some of the ones that have, have performed the best have been the ones that have kind of done less worse on their supply chain, if you will. You know, General Mills has gained share from Kellogg's because they've been had an easier time keeping uh, General Mills products on uh, shelves. But General Mills themselves said, well, they've really um, had greater challenges with supply chains than they typically have. Ingredients not showing up on time, you know, not knowing when the truck with the ingredients is going to arrive, all of those things. You know, Kraft Heinz said that on any given day, that company is lacking either some ingredients or some piece of packaging that they just never have a day where they have everything they need to, to make all the packaged food products that they would like. Um, so a lot of CPG market shares kind of reflect uh, that. It was also a big reason why CPG companies, the national CPG companies, took share from a lot of private labels during the pandemic is simply those, those products were on shelves, their supply chains held up better. Uh, I think in this coming year, there will be fewer of those challenges. Part of that is there will be a looser um, freight market. And also, I think um, a lot of these companies have sort of moved to multiple suppliers of ingredients. So they're not so beholden to one. I think you know some are still also are holding more in inventory going um, instead of just a, from a just in in time to just in case. I think that makes a lot of sense with, with, with packaged food, although the rising interest rates does make holding any of those inventories um, you know, more, more challenging. So it has been an interesting dichotomy when you listen to some of these retailers would say, well, you know, we have way too much an in inventory of certain general merchandise products, not enough uh, food products. We're still trying to increase you know, how much uh, of, of those we have. But um, I think in general, next year, uh, fewer supply chain uh, challenges. Move on to trend number nine is I'm expecting freight contract rates to fall and have a graphic on there showing uh, van contract rates. We can bring that up from Sonar. So uh, these are dry van rates. In in white, you see the van contract rates and those peaked uh, earlier this year at about $3 uh, thereabouts. And Comparing those to uh, spot rates in this chart in orange, and those those spot rates are adjusted to exclude fuel surcharges. Typically, you know, spot rates include everything; they include the fuel. Uh, but we're making a, a calculation to to exclude those using a base of a dollar twenty a mile, which is sort of the typical um, you know, base for what fuel surcharges are based off of. And you see how those, you know, at the, at the left part of that chart, they're typically higher than the contract rates, and that is kind of the market reacting, you know, rationally. But those really started to fall right around the beginning of this year, and they haven't really relented all that much, although there's a little bit of a seasonal increase just because this is kind of crunch time for getting um, you know, some products on shelves. Uh, but in, in general, what you're looking at there is an unsustainably wide gap where the spot rates are below contract rates by, let's call it, $0.65 cents, uh, a mile. Those are likely to, that, that spread is likely to collapse and even reverse, where you'll again have the spot rates above uh, contract rates. But I mean, really, it's going to be more of the, the contract rates, it appears, coming down to where those, those spot rates uh, are. And just about the most positive thing I've heard on the, the industry lately is there are some analysts who speculate that um, the spot rates are not going to get much lower from, 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 from where they are. Maybe that's you know optimistic uh, you know thinking now that we're heading into the the um, sort of the weaker months of the year in, in, in January and, and February, 
but um, suffice it to say, view of freight waves um, is that van, con- van contract rates and really the con- contract freight rates in general have a long way to, to, to fall, uh, particularly on the highway. Uh, moving on to the next uh, topic is uh, going to be the final trend I'll talk about. And this is a topic I could talk about for a long time if I wanted to. Uh, rail service will continue to improve under regulatory pressure. And uh, just listen to a lot of the hearing last week uh, where Union Pacific was testifying before the U.S. Surface Transportation Board. Uh, the U.S. Surface Transportation Board is the organization that ec- oversees economic issues of the railroads. And what they were uh, hearing was the um, Union Pacific's overuse from their perspective and from the shipper's perspective was overuse of embargoes. And so typically uh, what you would have is uh, only have railroad embargoes when there's a hurricane, polar vortex, flood, some uh, unusual sort of act of God. But uh, Union Pacific has been using those embargoes sort of as a matter of sort of regular course and has issued over a thousand year to date. You go back to 2017, it's only been 17 embargoes. So sort of dramatic increase. Union Pacific was using them more than every other class one railroad combined. And the shippers are howling about this. You know, labor says it's well, it's because that they have not um, you know, hired enough you know, people that they cut into the bone when uh, the volumes came back and you know, the railroads had not been able to hire back the employees um, because the morale issues are bad and the morale issues are bad because they, they're the too much away, time away from home, too few employees for, for how much um, you know, work there is to be done, et cetera, et cetera. And it does seem like the U.S. Surface Transportation Board is very concerned about the use of those embargoes. It was a, kind of an unusual step earlier this year when um, the U.S. Surface Transportation Board ordered Union Pacific to provide an, a, basically an emergency order to expedite and prioritize trains to move animal feed into foster farms. And they did that um, so that you know, the animals would get the food they needed, um, you know, sort of at, at the threat that those animals were going to have to be euthanized uh, prematurely. So unusual stuff for the, for the Surface Transportation Board. It wouldn't surprise me if there is... Um, you know, other, you know, ideas and other um, regulations coming on from, you know, in, in regard to sort of minimum service levels that the Surface Transportation Board uh, could uh, provide. So a lot to be worked through there and um, also a lot of uh, service issues to be ironed out on rail intermodal as well. I have a chart from uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the other West Coast um, railroad. And so this is data that Surface Transportation Board is uh, collecting, and this this you know focuses strictly on intermodal. And sort of the good news here is you know these are delay days in, in blue, sort of the, the total delay days, and then sort of broken those down by crewing availability in orange, locomotive power availability, and there's a lot of other, which is just kind of what the railroads are using as kind of other you know, to, you know congestion, which can be kind of a catch-all. And you know I do think that service will improve uh, for, for, for one reason. I think you know, the, the volumes are going to be constrained in, in, in rail intermodal. And, and then for another, I think there's just going to be a lot of regulatory pressure that uh, the, the rails have to you know, adhere to their common carrier obligation, maybe less of, it, uh, of an impact, or if, if maybe not an impact at all on the intermodal side of things. But I think those shippers that move on the rail carload side uh, will likely see better service 
you would hope you would hope that Union Pacific would not issue another 1,000 embargoes in 2023. But I think there's going to be a lot of regulatory pressure, at least in this current iteration of U.S. Surface Transportation Board. I think it's starting to get away from its reputation as being uh, kind of a paper tiger in terms of not being tough enough on the railroads. So those are 10 uh, trends that I'm seeing in uh, CPG in 2023. And if I've missed any, I uh, would encourage uh, anyone to reach out to me. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can, can reach out to me um, directly um, at m distal at freightwaves.com. And uh, the easiest way to maybe uh, see that email address would be to sign up for the Stockout newsletter, which try to get the um, and one or two newsletters out every week. And the easiest way to do that, just go to freightwaves.com, go up to newsletters, and right there under supply chains, you can see uh, the Stockout. So I talk about these type of issues, you know, talk about uh, what I'm seeing that's interesting in the consumer packaged goods industry or the freight industry or the supply chain as it relates to packaged food, other types of consumer packaged products, um, and really just will write about any sort of data topics that I find interesting in uh, FreightWaves uh, Sonar. Uh, and with that, that's really what I wanted to go over today and hope everyone has a great uh, holiday season.